appreciate the invitation to be here again with you guys. And I don't remember, I'm, I'm part of the, kind of the sermon planning team, but I don't remember entirely all the things we were thinking about a few months ago when we planned this. But the timing works out perfectly to be moving to two services next week because we're talking about community and in specifically in what I share this morning, talking about welcoming and keeping people in our circles and not excluding people. So that just fits perfectly. Well, uh, Pastor Kevin introduced me. My name is Jordan and i um, been friends with Kevin for a long time and, and just been privileged to be part of uh, this church from the beginning, even though I'm not a regular attender here. Uh, my wife and I serve as missionaries working with local churches in this area and uh, live over in Harrisburg. Um, but anyway, excited to be able to wrap up this Uncommon Community series this morning. And we're going to be talking about Zacchaeus. Now, when I say the name Zacchaeus, you might be thinking of a little song. Anybody, anybody know a little uh, nursery rhyme about, not nursery rhyme, that's not really the right word, about a wee little man. Yeah, I said that, and some people, I was surprised, maybe some people just didn't grow up in Sunday school uh, or, you know, vacation Bible school or wherever I heard it. But we're talking about a man that was excluded, that was on the outside. And the title of our message just, again, wraps up perfectly. Uh, I've listened to all the sermons, even though I haven't been here for this series. I've listened to everybody, Pastor Dustin and Pastor Kevin's sermons uh, from the series. And this is just going to wrap up really well. The story of Zacchaeus leading into two services and even just more intentionality of reaching out to those who may be not excluded, but a new person walking into a church feels a little excluded, uh, feels a little on the outside. But uh, So I have a question, have any of you ever felt like you're on the outside, like you're excluded from the community? I imagine all of us have to one degree or another, maybe some not as much as others. I know some people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm always the coolest kid in the circle. I'm always, you know, I'm the quarterback for the football team and the highest score for the basketball team and hit the most home runs for the baseball team and softball team, whatever. I, that was not me. Um, I was never, I was describing, I was talking to my kids and my wife this week. Cause I was asking, can you, I was trying to think of a good illustration to kind of open up and I don't know, I didn't get like a perfect story. I was thinking even like, I was looking up celebrity story, like famous people's stories about being excluded from the group. And I guess they're famous for a reason. They probably never were excluded from the group. I couldn't find a good story. But I was thinking of just myself, I was never the most popular kid, but it's also, I wasn't like shunned, the nerdiest kid, the, the losery, loseriest kid, anything like that. But I was never, here's the way I describe it. I always, to this day, 43 years old, I still always feel like I'm just right on the outside of the circle. Like when I come up to a group of friends, even people I know really well that I'm good friends with, I always feel just a little on the outside. Maybe they've known each other longer. Maybe they, our church, a lot of people grew up in that town, went to that town, their whole, you know, went to high school in that town, went away to college, came back, got a job in the same town, been to church together for 20 or more years. And so I always feel just a little on the outside. In school, I was really involved in theater. I wasn't an athlete, but I was really involved in theater, and people knew me. Everybody knew my name. I was, extre- I was the president of the drama club and the president of the, the theater group in our school and was in every play, either behind the, you know, behind the scenes doing lights or sound or on stage or director, whatever. Everybody knew who I was, but even in high school, again, I was always just right on the outside of the circle, a little bit excluded. And one illustration that did pop up in our, in our family as, as we talked about this idea is my daughter, my oldest daughter. She's now 20, but 
when she was a senior, she decided to transfer from being, we did homeschool, then we did cyber school for a few years, kind of through the COVID era, and then her senior year, she decided to go to a small, transfer to a small Christian school. And there was a lot of positives to it. She learned a lot. It was a good experience overall. But talk about being on the outside. A lot of these kids had gone. There was about 23, I think, 24 in her graduating class. I think 19 of those had gone K to 12 together. And then she's there going, hi, my name's Abby. And they don't know who she is. They've never met her. She didn't know any of these people. There's only one new girl, you know, one new student other than her. And so, man, clicks. Again, they were polite, but was she on the inside? Was she part of the crowd? No, not at all. And it, it, it was hard for her um, that year, but always just a little on the outside. Exclusion can be, you know, again, maybe just a little bit outside the circle, or you might be completely shunned. You feel like you have no part in that society, no part in that group, no part in that circle. You've, it could be uh, subtle or it could be really obvious. It could even be official as far as like you are just not part it happens in other countries, even happens here in America, that like, you are just outside. You are not part of this group at all. And there's a term called social, exclu- ex- yeah, social exclusion. And this is a definition from, from the Internet. It has many contributors, social exclusion, including race, income, employment status, social class, geographic location, personal habits, appearance, interests, education, religion, or political affiliation. Or insert probably even more ideas. You might be there. You go, yeah, I always feel like I, I work here, and because everybody else has a college degree and I don't have a college degree, I feel excluded. Or I work here, and they're all this political party, and I'm the other political party. No, I didn't say which one. Um, I feel excluded. I feel like I can't have a conversation. I feel, you know, our lives are just so different. I don't feel like I'm part of the circle. And we're going to talk about Zacchaeus, now he wasn't part of the circle. Again, an even more kind of official reason, official why. Why was he not part of the circle? So to give a little context, we're in the book of Luke chapter 19. If you're not there, if you have your Bibles, that'd be great to open them up. Luke 19. And this is towards the end of the life of Christ. He's ministered for his three years. We're leading right up to his time going into Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the term Passion Week, we'll be celebrating that in about a month a little less than a month, towards the end of March, as we lead towards Easter, he's about to head into Jerusalem. He's about to have that last week here on earth that finished with his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection. Obviously, they don't know all that's happening, the disciples as they follow him into Jerusalem. But this is right before that. He is in Jericho, and Jericho is like next-door neighbors to Jerusalem. So he's not far away. He's heading through Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem. And it's, again, it's that last week it's his last opportunity to minister to people before his crucifixion. He's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. I like getting the, the picture of where we're at in the Bible. So Luke 19, we're going to start in verse 1. And Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. So I already said that. Verse 2, there was a man there named Zacchaeus, okay, our, our main character for this passage. And it tells us about him right away. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. We'll stop there. So who was Zacchaeus? Number one, he was the chief tax collector and he was rich. The Bible is just very clear on that. He was chief tax collector, very rich. Now, what was a tax collector? If you're not familiar, there's several mentioned. Matthew, one of the disciples, was a tax collector. He was called a publican, which 
our understanding, he was like one step below the chief tax collector. So chief tax collector was given a region, and they were responsible kind of to hire a whole bunch of tax collectors uh, in that area, and they would be in charge of them. But the idea was, it's one thing, people even here in America, we don't like the tax man, we don't like the IRS, we don't like the little the lines on our paycheck stub that say all the money that got pulled out of our paycheck before it even you know, touched our hands or our bank account. But at least there are rules, and the government has to and they change the rules, but there are rules, the government follows the rules, and we have opportunity to appeal if there's an error or whatever. They just flat out made up the rules. So Rome was in charge of Israel at that point, and Rome said, we need this much tax for this, this type of person, we need this much tax for this type of person. But then the tax collector was allowed to just make up the rules. They were allowed to say, yes, we need this much tax, and we need a little more. And that little more just went right in their pocket. And, I mean, imagine, if you knew that was happening, but you, had, you were completely powerless to stop it, wouldn't you probably hate that tax collector if you knew that they were stealing from you and you couldn't do anything about it? Yeah, they hated the tax. And especially, it'd be one thing if it was Roman people that were collecting the taxes, but the Roman, the people, again, over Israel, they would hire Jewish people to be the tax collector. Zacchaeus would have been a Jewish person. So he was considered a traitor to his people, a traitor to his nation, because he was working for Rome, they didn't like Rome, and he was cheating and taking extra money. And in, in doing research for this message, that was, it was kind of dastardly. I mean, they would, uh, if they knew you were wealthy because you were traveling through town and you had just done business in another town, they would take extra taxes because they knew you had a lot of money in your, in your purse, in your money bag. That's like, man, underhanded, devious behavior. And so they wouldn't have liked a tax collector. But again, first off, it tells us he's a tax collector. Verse 3 tells us something else we know about him, that we can know about him. He was the tax collector. He'd become very rich. He tried to get, verse 3, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he was short. It's important details. Not very often the Bible tells us physical, you know, things like short, tall. I was just reading my quiet time yesterday, my daily devotions about Saul. Saul was tall. It tells us specifically that Saul was taller than everybody else. Well, Zacchaeus was shorter than everybody else. He was short. Maybe not shorter than anybody, but he was short. Short enough that he couldn't see over the crowd. He knew there'd be a crowd coming to see Jesus. We haven't gotten that far yet. But he was too short to see Jesus. <clears throat> and he wanted to see Jesus. We'll see in the next verses that he wanted to see Jesus. Well, let's just go ahead and read verse 4. Verse 3, He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. He wanted to see Jesus. Now again, we live in a different world. We live, if I want to find, sometimes I'm like, what? I heard a name. I can't remember what that celebrity looks like. I just go to Wikipedia, type in their name, or go to Google, type in the name. I can find a picture of anybody pretty much in the world. Go to IMDB, I can find all the different movies that person's been in and see what they look like through all the different movies. And I go, oh yeah, now I remember him. Now I remember her. But th you know, there's no photography. There's no internet. There's no social media. I heard about this guy named Jesus. I heard he's going to travel through Jericho into Jerusalem. He'd heard rumblings. He'd heard rumors. I want to see Jesus. But again, he's, I can't, I can't see over the crowd. What am I going to do? He wanted to see Jesus. Because of the crowd, he had to take extraordinary steps. He had to climb a tree. I mean, this is, I, I was thinking about that. When, if, you're not, if you're over like 18, when's the last time you climbed a tree? Unless that's like your job, 
like you're an arborist or tree trimmer. I haven't climbed a tree and I don't know how long. I, I can't honestly, I cannot think of the last time I've climbed a tree. I, man, I loved it. My, my front yard, till I fell out and, and landed on my back really hard. I kind of killed it for a while. I didn't really want to climb trees anymore. Um, but yeah, we expect that behavior from a kid. Kids love to hide up in the tree and, you know, create little, I, I, would, I would sit up and read books in the tree. I'm an only child, so that's what you have to do when you're only child. I climb up in the tree, read a book in the tree. You don't think of adults climbing trees. But then the question becomes, what will you do to get to Jesus? He was willing to take extraordinary steps even to just see Jesus. He didn't even expect to meet Jesus. He just wanted to see Jesus. Climbing a tree might seem a little extreme to some of us, but what will we do to get to Jesus? Some of us won't even open our Bibles to get to Jesus. If we say, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, yeah, but I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to spend time in the Word with Him. Some of us plan our Saturdays with no expectation of how is this going to lead to me getting to church on Sunday? Is this behavior, this activity on Saturday going to help me get enough rest, have enough energy to make it to church? I know making it to church isn't the only way we meet with Jesus, but it is important. Am I willing to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus? Am I willing to look a little foolish, a grown man climbing a tree, to see Jesus, to experience Jesus? He was willing to look foolish in order just to see Jesus. Again, he didn't expect it to go any farther than that. I want to see Jesus. So what happens when Jesus met Zacchaeus? We read up to verse 4, now verse 5. When Jesus met Zacchaeus, verse four, 5. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. We'll stop there. Jesus knew him. Jesus already knew his name. He didn't need to be told Zacchaeus' name. He already knew it. And our name is something special to us, right? We all love it when somebody knows our name. Maybe not when your mom calls out your first, middle, and last name at you when you get in trouble. But if I, if somebody, if I come in someplace and somebody says, Jordan, it's so good to see you. Welcome. They're like, oh, wow. People know my name. Somebody knows my name. Now, if you have a very common name, you might hear it a lot more often than others, and you realize that they're not even talking to you. But we all want people to know our name. Jesus, knowing Zacchaeus' name and saying it, communicated value. You're value to, valuable to me, Zacchaeus. I know your name. No one told him. I mean, he's God. Obviously, he knows everything. But he said it. He didn't have to. He could have just kept walking, and Zacchaeus could have said, Wow, I got to see the Messiah. I got to see Jesus. But then the Messiah turned around and said, Zacchaeus. And then what else did he say? Called him by name. Oh. Said Zach, let me jump ahead. He was on his way to save the world, but on his way he stopped to save one person. That one person. Yes, he's heading to Jerusalem. Yes, he's going to sacrifice his life for all of us, for all of history, thousands of years in the past and our future, or, or our present and our future. But on the way he stopped to talk to just one person. He stopped to save one person to have a conversation with one person, this guy, Zacchaeus, this excluded guy, this guy on the fringes. It's an amazing thing to think about. And no one saw Zacchaeus like Jesus did. Again, he, he was despised. He was hated. 
But Jesus just talked to him like a normal person. I'm, several points I'm going to make, uh, several, that quote I had on the screen just a moment ago came, Pastor Kevin mentioned a, a message to me I, I watched on YouTube from a guy, Reggie Joyner. He started a ministry called Orange. They do curriculum for kids' ministry and teen ministry. And he had a great message on that, so I've gotten several of these uh, kind of lists and things like that. So how did Jesus see Zacchaeus? Jesus saw someone with intrinsic worth. Yes, the general person might not like you. You might be despised. You might be a bad person, but you have value in my eyes, God says. We as people have intrinsic. That just means built in. It's not anything we do, anything we accomplish. Intrinsic means it's part of us. We have intrinsic value because we are created in the image of God. It doesn't matter what we do. Jesus saw a reflection of the image of God. I just said he's built in the image of God. When, when God sees us, yes, he sees, he knows we're sinners. Yes, he knows we do bad things. Yes, he knows we cheat and we steal money from the less fortunate like Zacchaeus did. But we are still a picture of the image of God. And thirdly, Jesus saw someone with vast potential. He wasn't there yet. He was still that tax collector. He's still doing things he shouldn't do. But Zacchaeus, you have vast potential. You could do great things for me. And when he sees us, he sees the same. He doesn't just see us where we are now. He sees our potential. And because he's God, he knows our potential. See, for us, as humans, it can be a little hard sometimes. We can go, I know this person has potential. If they change their life around, if they start making better decisions, I know they could accomplish great things. But sometimes it can be kind of hard to truly see it because of where they're at right now. But if we want to be like Christ... Sometimes we have to expand our vision a little bit go, I know he or she could accomplish great things. Let's lean into that. Let's live like they are, like they are going to have great potential. And then another quote from, from that message, Reggie Joyner. Something remarkable can happen when you start seeing people the way Jesus sees them. Let's pray to have the eyes of Jesus as we see people. As we meet a new person in the, in the lobby next Sunday. Let's see that person like Christ sees them. Not for what they're wearing, not for what they smell like when they walk in, not for the baggage. You sometimes you can literally see the baggage they're carrying as they walk in. Let's see them the way Jesus sees them, not the way our eyes want to see them. Because again, something remarkable can happen when we start seeing people the way Jesus sees them. With great potential with intrinsic worth, with the image of God. And that's how we're going to build community. That's how we're going to build an uncommon community, is to see people the way Jesus sees them. So now moving on to our story. Jesus knew him. He knew his name. Secondly, Jesus wanted to spend time with him. Verse 5 and 6. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down from the tree, and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. We'll stop there. Jesus wanted to spend time with him. Again, yes, he knew his name. That was great. He could have just, Zacchaeus, what's up? Nice to meet you, and kept moving. But he said, no, i got to spend time with you. I'm coming to your house. You love it when people invite themselves over to your house. It may not be the best, uh, in a normal case, it might not be the best thing, but this is Jesus. Zacchaeus was excited to see him, so he was very excited, as we see. He said he did it with great joy. Uh, great excitement and joy. Jesus instantly called Zacchaeus down from the tree and said, I'm coming to your house. Again, he was, Zacchaeus was this man completely excluded from society. He did not expect any fellow Jewish person to want to come to his house. 
It's literally said of Jesus. People were mad at Jesus because why? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. That was said about Jesus. That was used as an insult to Jesus. So Zacchaeus had no expectation that Jesus would want to spend time with him. Come to his house? No way! You would not want to go have lunch with a tax collector. It just wasn't done. You would be shunned from your system. I don't want to spend time with you because you spent time with a horrible, rotten tax collector, a cheat, an insult to our race, to our people. Obviously, Zacchaeus was happy to have Jesus over. He said with, uh, what did I say, with um, excitement and joy, great excitement and joy. Of course, he was happy to have Jesus over. But how did the other people react? Verse 7 says how the other people reacted. But the people were displeased. Then quotes, he has gone to the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. I mean, leave it to, leave it to these religious leaders to kind of just put a wet blanket on someone's excitement. Zacchaeus is excited. Jesus is coming. Not only did I get to see him, he's coming to my house. I get to introduce him to my family. I get to spend time with this great leader, speaker, traveling evangelist, whatever they would call him, this rabbi, this religious leader. But everybody else... They're not happy. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. And they grumbled. They were displeased. Who was Jesus, this, this supposed righteous religious leader, to go and spend time with a notorious sinner? And there might be people, when you try to welcome someone into your home, or you go to someone else's home, you spend time with someone, there might be people, other supposed Christians in your life, in your circles, in your community, that go, why are you spending time with her? Why are you spending time with him? Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know what she's done? Don't you know how they've lived their life? Don't you know their story? And we can say, yeah, I, I know it. Or maybe you don't know it. That's okay. Say, but they have intrinsic value. They are created in the image of God. There might be a whole lot. I mentioned baggage. There might be a whole lot of baggage that needs to get worked through. And Zacchaeus had it. We'll talk about it in a minute. But they are created in the image of God. They are valuable. They have great, vast potential to do great things for God. I'm not going to exclude them just because of their past. Again, they're, they're ideas of safeguards, and you might not, you know, if somebody has certain issues in life, you don't trust them around the, the church finances. They're not the one to count the checks as they come in because they've done some financial bad deals. You might not have them in the children's ministry because of things in their past, but again, vast potential, created the image of God, and have intrinsic worth. That's everybody. Now, what are the results of this meeting? Because it doesn't stop there. What happens when uh, Zacchaeus, Jesus comes to spend time with Zacchaeus? So, verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. He stood there. I don't know how much time passed by, what happened at lunch, what ha whatever meal they shared together. And, but this is what happens as a result of this. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. That's life change. It could have just been like, I'm so sorry for what I did, and uh, we're good, right? And just like moved on. I'm not going to cheat people anymore. I'm going to be good, Jesus. He said, not only, I'm going to, I like the other order better. I'm going to kind of flip it. All the people I cheated, I'm going to give them back quadruple. I mean, it's good. Restitution's one thing. Sometimes people get you know, sentenced to a crime, and they have to, part of it's restitution. You stole $1,000, you got to pay the store back $1,000. That's considered, maybe like with a little fee or something. But to give four times as much, that's just unheard of. Nobody does that. And 
I'm going to give half of my wealth. He said back all the way back in verse 3, he was a wealthy man. Or verse 2, whatever it was, back at the beginning. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor. And I'm going to make this great restitution to those I've cheated. So what's some things, the results of Zacchaeus meeting Jesus? Number one is life change. I am a different person now, Jesus. I'm different. I'm not the same. I'm not trying to play this game. I'm still going to be a tax collector, still cheat people, and be a Christian. No. There's life change. And our salvation, the life change that happens in our lives, is so much more than just, I used to be heading towards hell, now I'm heading towards heaven. That's all we view it as. Sometimes even those of us who share the message of Jesus, that's all we talk about. And there's, uh, that is the initial step, sure. We used to be heading towards hell, now we're heading towards heaven. We have a relationship with Jesus now. But that message needs to change our lives. And it changed Zacchaeus' life. It needs to bring about repentance. If you're not familiar with that term, repentance, sometimes we just think, I need to be sorry for my sin, and that's true. But repentance is actually about a life change, about a change of direction. I used to think my sin was okay, now I hate my sin. I am disgusted by my sin. I trust from the story that Zacchaeus all of a sudden goes, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I cheated my fellow people. I can't believe I stole money from them. I can't believe they couldn't feed their families because I stole so much money from them. I hate my sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm disgusted by my sin. It's more than just saying I'm sorry. It's more than just crying. It could involve that. It could involve emotion and things like that. But it actually involves changing our mind about our sin and changing direction. I used to do this. I'm not going to do that anymore. Yes, we still make mistakes. Yes, we still sin. And we've got to repent again. I don't know. Did Zacchaeus ever cheat anyone again? I don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But I trust as a, tr- as a follower of Jesus, he felt sorry for it and repented again and made the right decision a second time. In Zacchaeus' life, his repentance was all about money. You know why it was all about money? Because his sin was all about money. I'm not saying he didn't have any other sins, but in in the story, what we read, his repentance involved, it wasn't like, I'm going to start being a better husband to my wife. Maybe he needed to be, I don't know. But he needed to make a change in how he viewed money and how he viewed other people. I'm going to give half my money to the poor, and I'm going to give restitution four times to everyone I've cheated. He actually, I, I found that just in doing research, uh, a, a good little parallel. He actually did what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do in Luke 18, just the previous chapter. It says the rich, rich young man or rich young ruler. Jesus said, told him in uh, Luke 18:22, but when the uh, 18:21, there is still one thing you haven't done: sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have great tre- treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is Luke 18, 22. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. See, he wasn't willing to give his money to the poor and help out with his, with his finances, the great wealth he had. What did Zacchaeus do? He said, no, I am going to give half my money to the poor, and I'm going to make restitution for all those I've cheated. So he, he actually obeyed Jesus. Number one, life change. Number two, this fruit of salvation. Jesus isn't saying, oh, let's read verse 9, excuse me. Verse 9, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, Jesus isn't saying that Zacchaeus was saved by giving half his money to the poor and, and making this restitution. He's not saying that. 
But he is saying that Jesus' changed life was a sign or a fruit of a life changed by meeting Jesus. When our life is changed, there should be results of that, right? There should be something somebody can see, something somebody can observe different about myself now. By saying I'm changed by Jesus, there should be some fruit of that. And in Zacchaeus' life, it was how he viewed money, how he treated people that he'd stolen from. If you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, how has your life changed? Because otherwise it could be just talk. Zacchaeus could have said, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for coming to my home. I'm so you know, appreciative of your teaching. What do I have to do to be a follower? Whatever questions. And then Jesus leaves and heads into Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus kept doing exactly what he'd done before. Well, we would all go, yeah, there's no fruit. Nothing's changed about your life. You're still cheating people. You're not a, a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. And this changed life. It said there in verse 8, Zacchaeus showed himself, 9, verse 9, excuse me, Zacchaeus showed himself to be a true son of Abraham. He's saying a son of Abraham would be a Jewish person. And he said he was Jewish. Pretty much everybody in Israel was a Jew. There were obviously some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people. But Jesus is saying, no, you're really a Jew because you're really following God right now. You really weren't following God when you were cheating your people, when you were stealing from them. Now you really are following God. And this passage, verses 1 to 10, kind of wraps up with a verse. It doesn't, I mean, it fits, but it's a little different. Um, it's Jesus' last words before the next story. And it says, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So why was Jesus there? Why was Jesus involved in this? Why was he heading from Jericho to Jerusalem? Why? This really wraps up his whole life. Like, why was he ministering for the last three years? He was there to seek and save those who are lost. Like Zacchaeus. He sought Zacchaeus. He could have just walked up and never looked up in the tree. He didn't have to. Many of us would do that. But he, he sought after Zacchaeus. He was proactive. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek after and save lost people, like Zacchaeus, like the religious leader in the previous chapter, like the religious leaders that were following Jesus and go, ooh, he's spending time with Zacchaeus, he's going to Zacchaeus' house. He came to seek and save them too. He came to seek and save me. He came to seek and save all of us. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus walk this path from um, city to city, to Jericho, to Jerusalem, to the cross, to seek and save the lost. So wrapping up, how do we build an uncommon community? This is the last message of the series before we move on to the next series next week and the two services. How do we build an uncommon community? Number one, we need to know one another. In order to build an uncommon community, we need to know one another. This is one more piece from that message from Reggie Joyner that, that Pastor Kevin shared with me. That was, and this is the title of it, Five Questions Every Leader Needs to Know. If we're really going to know one another, and this obviously was the context of youth ministry, but I think it applies to all of us as parents, as church members, many of you involved in different ministry positions here in church, as coworkers, as neighbors, five questions every leader needs to know. Number one, do you know my name? The picture that's coming from a teenager, from a child, as a leader, do you know my name even? Because that's important to know people's names. It shows value. We talked about that earlier. Number two, do you know what matters to me? Do you know what's important to me as a person? 
Jesus knew it for Zacchaeus. He knew it was important to him. He knew what mattered to Zacchaeus. Number three, do you know where I live? Again, maybe not add, but do you know my background? Do you know where I'm from? Do you know if I'm from the good side of town or the bad side of town? Do you know if we have a beautiful house or, or we don't even have a house? Do you know where I live? Jesus knew where Zacchaeus lived. Do you know what I've done? Again, it's not about judging, but do you know my story? Do you know where I've come from? Do you know my past? And then number five, do you know what I can do? Do you know my, my potential? Do you know what I could accomplish for God? And again, all this shows great value as someone who ministers to others. We have to get to know one another. We need to get beyond our row. We need to get beyond our clique. We need to get beyond our age group. Sometimes we just kind of huddle with those who are the same age, approximate, same life stage. You've got kids, I've got young kids, let's get in a circle together and spend time together. And we kind of, other people that maybe aren't parents, that aren't married, feel on the outside. We need to get beyond our row. We need to get beyond our clique. We need to get beyond our age group. But even in those groups, sometimes we don't really know each other. They might be in that same circle as you, but we don't spend time because they're the ones that don't speak up. They're the ones that not maybe as, as boisterous or as sharing. We need to get to know one another. Number two, in order to build on common community, we need that no group can be excluded. This ties in with what Pastor Kevin shared a few weeks ago. Our communities of faith need to include everybody. They need to include women, children, our enemies, rich, poor, fill in the blank. We can't exclude anybody. Now, everybody's not going to be our best friend. I understand that, but no one can be excluded. And then thirdly, our unity cannot be based on ourselves. In order to build an uncommon community, our unity cannot be based on ourselves. This um, tied in with what Pastor Kevin shared last week. Just like Peter's conversation with Cornelius, we're not always going to find unity in and of ourselves. Peter, would, he didn't even want to be there. He didn't want to be having this conversation with a Gentile, if you weren't here last week or didn't hear his message. He didn't want to be there. He kind of basically was like the worst. He started out the, his conversation with Cornelius the worst way possible because he didn't want to be there. His unity was not based on, on anything inside of Peter because he didn't even want to be with it. He was a Jewish person who was trained. I don't, you don't even talk to Gentiles. And now I've got to have a conversation one-on-one, -on -one, basically, with a Gentile. I don't even want to be here. Sometimes it's easy, but we all too often stop at the easy conversations. We don't have the difficult conversations. We don't meet the people that we're not like. And we need to lean into unity when it's not easy. We need to lean into it. We need to be proactive to build unity because it's not going to be natural all the time. The last thing, I am an introvert. The last thing I want to do on a Sunday morning is meet the new people. Just to be perfectly honest, I, want, I, I work in Sound Booth a lot at my church, and I'm happy at Sound Booth's like a little wall, and nobody, you know, we're elevated above the church a little bit, you know, above the sanctuary, and I get, you know, have a fort built around me. I don't have to meet new people. But I have to lean into it. If I'm going to build unity in the church, if I'm going to build community, and we have a lot of new people come to our church, just like you have a lot of new people come to this church, we need to get to know one another. We have to be proactive in it. We need to lean into it when it's not easy. And the best thing about it is our unity is not based on me. It's not based on you. It's not based on a new person walking in the door. Our unity is based on Jesus Christ. Nothing in me. Because, again, I don't even want to do it. But that person has worth, has value, has the image of God ingrained in themselves, just like I do. 
So we instantly have unity in Christ. If everything else is different, race, gender, age, life stage, could all be different, but we still have unity through Christ, a connection through Christ. Our unity is only available through Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, all of our behalf. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. It's been a privilege to be able to study it these last few weeks. A, a story, yeah, I've heard it since I was a kid. I sang the song in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, but I never really studied his story. Um, I never stu- studied your part of his story, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would help us to build unity, that you would help us to place that value on others that you have placed on them. That you would help us to build unity when we don't see it, when we don't want to. That you'd help us to build this uncommon community, this, this uh, kingdom of God, little picture of the kingdom of God here in Lancaster County. And that as people come in, as we get to meet new people, maybe some that have come for a few weeks, maybe some new people that will be coming this next week or this next month, that you'd help us to build in their lives, get to know their name. And the next time we see them, that we would know their name. I know that's not easy for all of us, God. Help us, give us that ability to remember a name for a week, for two weeks. And as we greet them the second or third week they're here, we'd still remember their name, that we would reach out, that we would invite them to coffee, invite them to a meal, Invite them to uh, another gathering here at church, whether it be one of the Bible studies or popcorn with the pastor, that we would be reaching out and building a community of people. Not for our sake, not so the numbers of this church would grow, but so that more people be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this body would become more and more powerful, more and more outreaching through more and more people being involved, and more would be accomplished for your kingdom through the people here all for your honor 